It's a heart-wrenching topic, and yet an absolute necessary and, in fact, beautiful documentary, nevertheless. A Plastic Ocean. A new film that follows researchers across all oceans to examine just how much plastic pollution there is in the oceans, how it behaves in the water, and what it does to the biology of ocean life, and actually, directly to humans as well. We're having one of the chief scientists here on the show today. A plastic ocean, a critical view on our planet's pollution. That's our topic here today in this hour of an organic conversation. Your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a great new documentary available that combines one of the most difficult environmental topics to grasp, ocean plastic pollution, with the beauty of the sea and all its inhabitants, from fish to mammals, from turtles to seabirds, all the way to humans. Much of life on this planet is directly related to, or depends upon, our oceans. A plastic ocean captures this connection that we all have with the sea and brings us a critical and serious and very visual message of the plastic pollution problem that we are facing. It is staggering, and yet some early solutions to this problem are being developed, as we will hear today as well. A plastic ocean, a critical view on our planet's pollution. That's our focus here in this hour of an organic conversation. All that and more coming up in just a minute. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. We're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. A critical view on our planet's pollution, in this case, plastic pollution, 
is our focus in this hour of an organic conversation. There's a new documentary called A Plastic Ocean. And I'm speaking now with Bonnie Monteleone, the Executive Director, Director of Science, Research and Academic Partnerships for the Plastic Oceans Project, plasticoceans.org, the website. She's joining me today from Wilmington, North Carolina. Bonnie, do we have you on the line? Yes. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for making time. It's a really difficult topic, as I said in my intro, but somehow A Plastic Ocean managed to be a quite beautiful documentary nevertheless. The message I got is the planet is 70% water and we must love our oceans and protect them and all the life in it and that depends on it or the, the way we know life will end. Can you explain just how much we are dependent on the ocean from food to shipping to climate? What are the connections here that we need to make and cannot afford to lose? Definitely the food. So according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, about 31% of the commercial fish stock that we rely on are overfished. And part of that is due to um, our use of plastic. So when we talk about overfishing, we used to use hemp and cotton as our fishing and our nets. And now because it's made out of the lightweight material of plastic that doesn't break, especially in the marine environment, they can be up to 40 miles long. So you can imagine the amount of bycatch. So we're losing a lot of our, our fish stocks that, you know, uh, our population is continuing to grow. So it's estimated by the 2050 we'll be at 9.2 billion people. So our oceans are important because they feed us. But I think another big unknown is the fact that we can thank the ocean for every other breath that we take. So most uh, equate oxygen to our trees and plant life, but indeed our oceans also have plant life that is important for that oxygen exchange. And in fact, uh, the ocean is uh, where our CO2 or carbon sink and heat sink occurs. So in reducing the uh, temperatures that we're now rising, we're having this exchange in our ocean. So that also has a huge impact on what grows and lives in the ocean because they are sensitive to temperature. And also um, this notion that the very bottom of the ocean is now, as the film shows, um, having an issue with, you know, all, not all plastics float, many sink and end up on the bottom where this plant life is um, in our more coastal regions that marine life depend upon, but also is, is contributing to the um, carbon sink. So you can understand that on so many levels, plastic is interfering with the basic functions of our oceans, oceans that we cannot live without. When you got involved and you've been doing this work as a Uh, researcher, as a scientist, you've been studying the plastic pools, the gyres in almost all oceans around the world for years, actually. You got into this in the, in the 2000s. When did you fall in love with the ocean? What happened in your awareness to dedicate your life and your career to protecting this part of the environment? Well, oddly enough, I'm from central New York, so landlocked region. Um, I was one of seven in my family, so we didn't go on vacations very often. And, and when we did, it was usually to visit another family member. And um, when I was five, 
my uncle and aunt who lived in New Jersey took us to the shore. It was you know, a big ordeal with coolers and sandwiches, and I had no idea where, where we were going. But um, when I set foot on that sand and I saw the vastness of the sea and not even understanding the word ocean and, and knowing then that eventually when I grew up, I was going to live on the ocean. Well, it took me 40 years to accomplish that, but um, I ended up in Wilmington, North Carolina about a dozen years ago, and I was taking a course called Scientific Writing, and we, we had an assignment of Classic Oceans by Susan Casey, and it was in this article where it described the man Charles Moore, who I attribute the tipping point of why we're having this discussion today just really a mariner who decided to study plastics in the ocean because he had sailed through the North Pacific garbage patch region. And um, and describing all this plastic detritus thousands of miles away from land and, and all the horrific impacts from plastic ingestion and, of course, these plastics, when they break, have sharp edges, causing internal damage from the chemical compounds that are in plastic that migrate into the tissue of these animals to also the incidence of entanglement. So um, this plastic really, in a sense, is the apex predator of the sea now because it doesn't discriminate what it destroys. And it can destroy anything from plankton to the largest animal on the planet, which is the blue whale. And indeed, the research we do here at UNC Wilmington, we dissect or necropsy uh, large marine animals, and sadly, we find plastics in their stomachs to um, some of this gear that I described earlier, um, this fishing gear that's made out of plastic that ends up getting wrapped around flukes and and, um, causing whales to drown. Yeah, so my love for it came when I was very young, and then recognizing the, the fear of losing all of that is what has motivated me to start a nonprofit called Plastic Ocean Project. Working at the university with students and other universities, and to date I've worked with over 90 undergraduates, high school students, middle school children, trying to get them the same opportunity I have had through my research so mm-hmm. that they can understand the problems with these plastics, but also help them realize why it's important that each and every one of us participate in fixing it. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and I'm speaking with Bonnie Monteleone, the executive director at the Plastic Oceans Project. Again, the website, plasticoceans.org. What is the problem with plastic? Can we look at that in more depth? When I watched the movie, it's almost... It's horrible images of seabirds, for example, ingesting plastics, and then they die because their stomachs are full, and the body decomposes, but the plastic doesn't. So you have where the stomach once was kind of the the markings of the bird still clearly that, that this is a deceased bird, but this pile of plastic that once was in his stomach being left over, it, it's, it's grotesque. It's almost the most poignant and in a way beautiful art of showing life in plastic once life long goes, plastic will still remain. What are all the the impacts of plastic? How does plastic behave? Can you talk about plastic 
pebbles that I've just learned about, why are they a problem and how, how does plastic show up in our oceans? Well, that is a loaded question. <laughs> there are so many ways that we can discuss this issue, anywhere from how it impacts marine organisms to the fact that we eat fish. So um, if these organisms are ingesting plastics, and we know that there are chemicals inside plastics that are going to affect us personally. So for example, um, bisphenol A, there's been a, a lot of discussion and including companies that are now touting that they no longer use BPA in their products. Um, BPA was actually originally designed to be a female hormone replacement. So there's no question of its estrogenic properties. And so when you think about those chemicals leaching out of a baby bottle, right, so now we're dosing our young children with these chemical compounds that will have an effect on the endocrine system. So one of the biggest problems and what we're studying here is looking at these chemicals and, um, and their impact on the endocrine system. Now, the endocrine system is what manages every cell in your body. So you can understand why it's difficult to even pinpoint exactly is it the plastic that's affecting us. But we are finding out that these chemical additives, um, phthalates is another one, and flame retardants, do have an impact on one of the most essential um, components in our bodies. So that's just one characteristic of the plastics itself. So how, how yes. does that move from fish? Fish eats this pieces of plastic in the ocean colored, thinking this is prey, uh, and once they're in the stomach and they break down or somewhat break down, those chemical compounds leach into the meat of the fish and then we eat the fish? Is that the chain? Yes. So some work that we have done here actually on sea turtles. So we wanted to look at those chemical compounds that are in plastics. And I was going to also add that the, the dirty dozen, the DDTs and PCBs that are free-floating in our oceans um, will attach to these plastics. And so what we're looking at is mm. what's the vehicle, like you asked, what is it that, you know, that we should be looking at in order to understand when plastics are in the gut content, what's mm -hmm. happening. And what we've learned here is that it's not so much in the stomach that these chemicals are removed, but in the small and large intestines. And that's because there's lipids in your small and large intestines, and these chemicals are lipophilic, and so they're attracted to the oils. And that's what transfers those chemicals off of the plastic and into the intestinal fluids, and then they will be passed through the intestinal wall and, of course, into the bloodstream. And what concentrations are we talking about? I mean, if, if somebody regularly ate ocean fish that had ingested plastics, do you find amounts that are alarming? Well, this is what, we, what we're first establishing is, is the fact that this it happens. Yes. And second of all, we need to understand how many fish are ingesting plastics. So the research that uh, Algalita Marine Research Foundation, who I sailed across the garbage patch with, um, they, their study revealed out of the 680 fish that they uh, dissected, a third, over a third of them had eaten plastics or had illustrated plastics in their stomach content. Mm -hmm. so, so we can't just say if you eat a certain number of fish, you're going to have that much exposure because, because of that fact. 
but it's just another vehicle yes. for these chemicals to end up in our bloodstream. And already, almost 100% of Americans have BPA in their blood. So um, any chance that we have to reduce the amount of chemical compounds that are ending up in our body of um, is a good place to start. When we talk about plastic, can you? what's the life, life uh, story of plastic? So a bottle, plastic bottle water ends up in a landfill or, or floats out to the ocean. Eventually, what, what happens to the plastic? We're not talking about necessarily yogurt containers, or do we? What do you find thousands of miles in the ocean? Are there complete products still, or are these all broken down now, and in what way do they break down? Yes, so it really depends on where you're looking. So I've traveled over 10,000 nautical miles looking at this issue. I've been to four of the five gyres, mm. and certainly in the um, center of these gyres, we are finding high concentrations of fragments of plastics, right? So plastics don't biodegrade, they photodegrade. So when they're in the water, they're, many of them are floating and they're getting exposed to, to sunlight, plenty of sunlight, wave action. And what happens is the sun is removing those chemical compounds that make it flexible and it makes it brittle. And then the wave action breaks them up into smaller pieces, as well as we find large pieces of plastic that have bite marks in them. So even marine organisms are contributing mm -hmm. to that breakdown process. So when we look at the different size fractions of plastics that we find in the middle of the gyre, we break them down into four categories. And as we look at the smaller size fraction, it would make sense that there would be more pieces, right? As things break, they're going to break into more pieces. But yet we are not finding as many at the 0.5 millimeter and 1 millimeter size that we should in our sample. And we have to question where are they going? Why can't we find them? And so research that we've done here and actually show in the film is that plankton will ingest these plastic particles and sometimes even gorge themselves on them. And the real problem with that is they can't break down these chemicals, so they end up lodged in their bodies, and eventually it will be their demise. That's one of the biggest problems with plastics is that it breaks down, but it never really goes away. We, it hasn't been around long enough for us to even figure out if it will ever mineralize. Life without plankton on this planet would not be possible, right? Can you, can you illustrate that connection? Yes. Yeah, so, of course, plankton is the base of the food web, right? So when we take out large portions of plankton, we are actually causing the demise of all the trophic levels that are above that. And there are plenty of even the large baleen whales that rely on that plankton. So you can actually attack both ends of just by losing the plankton. And as you said in the beginning, of course, we have three carbon places, two sinks, one in the ocean and one in the soil, and then another place where to find carbon, of course, is in the atmosphere. And to manage the soil is something humans can do to manage the ocean plankton in this case that, that holds the most carbon is very, very, very difficult. So once that goes, we would see a dramatic further increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. Is that is it, a, exactly a right way to exactly. say it? Exactly. The, the base of the food web is where everything starts. And without the start, then you cannot have what you need.
So whether whether that's soil on land or it's plankton in the ocean, that's where most of the carbon is stored and it goes from there. Exactly, right. A plastic ocean, a critical view on our planet's pollution is our topic here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg and I'm speaking with Bonnie Monteleone. She's the Executive Director, Director of Science, Research and Academic Partnerships at the Plastic Oceans Project. We're going to take a quick break, but meanwhile, you can check out plasticoceans.org, the website. And um, Bonnie, thanks again so much for making time today. And please stay on the line. We'll take a quick break to honor our underwriters and be right back with more. This show is brought to you by Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour is the plastic pollution problem, in this case, in the ocean. A plastic ocean, a critical view on our planet's pollution, a new documentary that is studying what does happen to plastic once it reaches the water, how does it affect marine life, and eventually, how does it affect human life. Our guest today is Bonnie Monteleone. She's the executive director of the Plastic Oceans Project, and she's joining me today from Wilmington, North Carolina. Bonnie, before the break, you were talking about the smallest parts of plastic. In the movie, it's really interesting to see, though, that after months in the water and thousands of miles from mainland away, you can still find a plastic crate that carried Coke bottles at one point. What are the different degrees of breakdown? You talked about the microscopic, even the the, the parts that we haven't even yet understood or found so small, but we are talking 3,000 miles in the ocean, still completely intact plastic pieces. Yeah, what have you found in your in your work studying those gyres? So one of the you know when you started the conversation, you were saying you know what are some of the issues from not even just what happens to us, but what's happening to the ocean with this, these plastics. So when we were sailing across the North Pacific Garbage Patch, we would come across these large plastic objects garbage pails to um, bins, all different types of large pieces. And what we were finding were this biomixing of marine life that would perhaps get associated with this plastic like tropical fish. And then this plastic would start heading out to sea and these tropical fish would follow these plastic items out into the middle of the gyre. Like a fake coral reef, basically? Like a f yes, exactly like an artificial reef. And so, you know, when you start looking at just what plastic is doing to 
exacerbate the issue of invasive species. Um, we find all different types of things growing on plastics, including sea anemones, you know, something that should be found in the coastal waters out in the middle of the ocean, to oysters, um, to different types of, of fish that don't belong there, including uh, gooseneck barnacles, which are unknown invasive species. Just a couple of years ago, when the tsunami had launched a, a um, dock all the way over to the West Coast, um, in Washington, I believe, it was covered with all different species, and they had to destroy those species that were on that dock for that very reason. So this is yet another major issue caused from just allowing plastic to end up in the ocean. Can you put some numbers behind the, the graphic images? Like, what are we talking about? How much plastic is added? How many cubic tons, metric tons, are are in the ocean right now on your estimate? Where, where are we? So research done by Jenna Bombeck recently published that between 8 to 12 metric tons are ending up in our oceans just due to runoff. So when I say runoff, I'm talking about our rivers that lead to rivers that then end up in our waterways and head out to sea. It, so every, a year or? Every year. Mm-hmm. Every year, six to eight, eight to twelve metric tons. So that's just compounding what's getting out there from our beachgoers or people leaving stuff behind um, in lakes, as well as what's being dumped purposely in the ocean. And that's not at all including what's happening when cargo ships lose their cargo. Yeah, there was the first, I, mean, I don't, actually don't know if it was the first case, but there was a case in China where after a typhoon, containers of a, a ship fell off the ship and uh, broke loose and, and broke, and they were full of plastic pebbles. It created the first official, not oil, but plastic spill. Can you talk about how plastic is being made so that it's it's actually not just the end product, but in this case, since we are such a plastic society, it's affecting the ocean, in this case, on, on every level of, of production. Is that right? That's true. And in fact, when we do our research, we quantify what we collect. And we most always find a plastic pellet or dozens of them out in the middle of the ocean, right? So they're also referred to as Uh, nurdles or mermaid tears. And these are pre-production pellets. When we go offshore and we drill for oil, most people assume that all of that oil is, you know, to put for fuel in our cars or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we only use about half a barrel of oil for the fuel and the rest is to make stuff. And a large portion of that stuff is plastic. So this oil is then sent to a refinery that is then sent to a company that will turn it into these plastic pellets. And then they are shipped around the world. So unfortunately, because most of these refineries are close to the water, these pellets will end up in the ocean, whether through runoff or from um, ending up on ships that accidentally lose their load. And so the incident that you're referring to happened in July of 2012 when seven containers of these pre-production pellets, six of which added up to 150 tons of these very small plastic beads that ended up washing up in, in China and 
Um, I mean, it, it was absolutely horrific to the point where the entire beaches looked like they were covered in snow, but it was completely covered in these pellets. Well, like it, it, any- it reminded me actually exactly again, and now I understand why, not just by what it actually looked like, but what it was. It reminded me of an oil spill. I've seen those pictures from from Europe to Alaska. We all have to the Gulf of Mexico, of course, where, where seabirds and, and, and ocean life was affected, where the entire beaches were covered with oil slick. In this case, oil not in its crude form, but oil turned into plastic little pebbles. And and I'll go so far as to say it's another form of an oil spill. That's what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, and of course these pellets, they they look like fish eggs. So any organism that would see them would possibly, you know, be confused uh, that they are food. So um, in this virgin state, you know, I had mentioned some of the chemical compounds that are added to these plastics to give it certain characteristics. Those chemical compounds aren't necessarily added to these plastics at that point. So that's kind of the silver lining, right? But the the downside is these pellets will act like sponges and adsorb, again, the dirty dozen, the DDTs and PCBs and all those known carcinogens into these plastics. And then the animals, unfortunately, mistake this for food and ingest them. So, um, but yeah. but I would like to go into that story a little farther because there's there's always Please. as any bad situation does have some good, and I would like to share with your audience some of the the really good things that happened, and they're actually brought out in the story, um, the film. Yeah, and, luckily they happen after really um, hard images of seabirds, as you ju- were just saying. The because plastic is colored. Uh, many little plastic pieces look like squid, so albatross and other seabirds eat those. And as I, be, as I said in the beginning of the show, with a stomach full of, of um, plastics, uh, they literally malnourish and die uh, and are unable to digest that, of course. So sure. that's all and the way... And that's the weight burden load, right? So to fly and have to carry all that plastic is another huge problem without the energy source because they receive no nutrition from these plastics. Yes, and that goes all the way into Midway, which is this um, island atoll in in the middle of the Pacific, uh, the furthest away from any mainland. And it's it's stunning how much plastic is being washed ashore there, far away from civilization in a way. Um, Yeah, you would think that it was like a, a, a large community that lived there because there's so much plastic on the island and in these chicks, but all of that plastic is coming from thousands of miles away from land, and it's the ocean currents that are driving driving it, but also because, like you said, many of these plastic objects look like food. Like to a bird, for you know, millennia, anything that floated was food. And so they assume this floating debris is also food, and, and sadly, the parent birds will scoop up these plastics and bring them to their chicks and feed this plastic to their chicks. And uh, it is, it's horrific because how do, how do we stop that, right? I mean, you can't educate the birds. So we have to educate the people. Yes, which brings us to your amazing organization. Again, I'm speaking with Bonnie Monteleone. She is the executive director of 
the Plastic Oceans Project in association with this film, The Plastic Ocean, plasticoceans.org, the website. They are, as you said, a, a handful of really uh, inspiring and tried and true already small solutions that show tremendous success in addressing this massive plastic crisis. Can you talk about them? What are some technical solutions? What are some other ingenious ideas? And what are you focused on? What are the next steps for this film and your organization? Well, I think in the film, my favorite solution, and it's something that we are also working on here at the university level, is taking plastics and turning it back into fuel. The sad reality with most of the plastics is they are not recyclable. So some are, like your bottles, your water beverage bottles, your detergent bottles, and your shampoo bottles. Those are pretty well established and being recycled. But the other plastics, not so much. So if, we're, if we have a lot of plastics that are eventually going to end up in the landfill, I think the most successful solution is to at least take those plastics and turn it back into its original properties, like nature does, right? So uh, nature grows a fruit, and then the fruit peel is discarded, and it's turned back into healthy soil in order to grow another plant, right? So this is exactly what we're thinking as a viable solution for getting rid of of this problem. You know, so it's, you you're saying it's possible to turn a plastic bottle theoretically, or is that already done back into oil and, you know, the, the binders and, and then redo it again? Yes. Well, this is what we're finding because it is very difficult, not impossible, but it's very difficult to take a plastic item and turn it into um, oil and then turn it back into a bottle because there are so many chemical compounds that are added to this particular mm -hmm. product. So what we're saying is that all the non-recyclable plastics, you know, like your Mylar packaging, plastic bags, um, all the different little pieces, your bottle caps, you know, that are just not readily recyclable, yes. taking those items and turning them into fuel. Amazing. And I also was very impressed that the U.S. Navy actually had a plastic and garbage problem on their warships. And because there are 4,000, 5,000 sailors on those ships, if it's a large aircraft carrier, for example, so they had to come up with a solution that would deal with the, with the plastic waste in this case particularly. And from what I gathered from the film, there's now a, an oven, a burner, that is so hot that it can actually turn plastics cleanly into just a little white powder where all components are, are burned. Is that a fair summary? That's a, a pretty fair assessment. <laughs> and, um, Do it, yeah. make it better. <laughs> what well, can you say I about that? Absolutely. And, I, and I wasn't, I'm not that familiar <laughs> with that technology. I just know that there are places in the U.S. that are now taking plastics and turning it into fuel. And so we're doing it as an independent study to determine that if you turn it into fuel and then you combust it, what are the emissions? Wanting to understand the whole of the solution before we go launching it and touting Great. it as sure. the solution. Yes. Because this is what kind of what got us into this mess in the first place with plastic. You know, many of the plastics that were created were for environmental reasons. Some of the very first plastics that were created were actually to emulate ivory because we were annihilating um, the elephant kingdom because we were turning those, uh, that ivory into billiard balls. 
So um, coming up with an idea that of something that looked a lot like ivory but wasn't was part of preserving the elephant population. And the same thing with plastic mm. bags. We were cutting down so many trees in order to make paper bags that the plastic bag came along in a solution to that problem, but of course it created another one. So what we want to do is whatever solution we come up with for solving this problem, we better check every aspect of it before we go and, and actually promote it as being a viable solution. I love it. That's great. Yes, a totally holistic approach where we look at the full life cycle of any solution that or any product that we would create. I really also liked the local economy aspect that I think it was Haiti, right, where people have started kind of a recycle bank where they give people some money for collecting the plastic and then when it's enough volume, ship it to another country to be truly recycled as a as a waste stream product. So even here in North Carolina, we have a campaign that says, your bottle means jobs, right? So these mm, bottles so can great. be turned into so many good products like fabric, like carpeting, and that's what we're doing here. And so to get people to look at this plastic as, as not as waste, a resource. Yeah. But it's a resource. Yes. yes, it is a resource. And, um, you know, one of the things when we get really upset about an oil spill, you know, part of that oil spill thought is, oh, no, we're losing a resource. You know, we have this horrific imagery in our minds of, of what's happening to marine organisms that are swimming through that, who, that are trying to breathe through that, right? But when we think about plastics in the ocean, We think of it as, well, it's just garbage. And some of us, that really bothers us, even the notion that our garbage is ending up in the ocean. Like, it just seems like something that we can do something about. Where an oil spill, we don't have much control over. And when we start getting people empowered and thinking that this is not waste, this is not garbage, mm. this has value. And once we give plastic value, then it won't end up in places that it doesn't belong. What are the next steps that you would suggest? Where? What are you focused on? What's PlasticOceans.org? I know you're doing research, and but it's so much bigger. What is? Yeah. What's necessary? How can we get there? Number one, so you know the, the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, right? So <laughs> why are they in that order? Is because that's really how we should approach our plastic consumption. Number one is to reduce just to try to take as much of it out of our lives as possible. I thought it's reject, reduce, reuse, recycle. Oh, there's refuse, too. That's exactly. That's a new one, right? <laughs> refuse, <laughs> reduce, yeah. Um, and yes, so, you know, when you start thinking about, well, they keep putting it on the shelf, so I'll buy it. In actuality, if we leave those items on the shelves, eventually they'll stop producing them. And that's really the, the bottom line is we vote with our dollars what we want to see on the shelves. So when we start making better conscious decisions about what packaging we're buying our products in, that's when we're steering the boat, right? We're deciding what we want to have manufactured. So if we can start looking at different packaging, I'd love to give the example of, you know, bottled soaps, right? A lot of people use bottled soaps instead of, you know, bars of soap. 
Well, in actuality, not only are you getting this bottle that's going to be around for a thousand years, but you're also buying mostly water. So if you buy a bar of soap that's not packaged in plastic, then you're you're actually buying all soap, right? So these are little things that we can do, little changes that we can make in order to reduce the impacts of this plastic in our environment. Great. That's number one. And, and what's number two? Number two is definitely reuse. You know, so uh, when I go to the store, I always try to buy whatever it is that I can, like salad dressings or uh, tomato sauce in glass. And then I will reuse that glass jar. You can use glass jars and stick them in the freezer as long as you don't fill them to the top. Um, you can reuse them for any kind of container that you have in, that you buy in bulk, which is another great way of reducing how much plastic we have in our environment. So finding ways to reuse uh, reusable bags, right? So we don't need to get a plastic bag. Every time, yes. Reusable coffee mugs, reusable water vessels. All of these things help reduce the, uh, the chances of this debris ending up in the ocean because, you know, we don't know how it's getting there, but we do know that when we put stuff on our car, we put the garbage on the curb to be taken to the landfill. It ends up somewhere, yeah. We have no idea where it yes. ends up. And it's very possible that a por- portion of that is, you know, flying off of the truck and ending up on the side of the road, and then it goes down the storm drains, and then from the storm drains out into the ocean. And I like to say that if we don't use it, we can't lose it. And then we prevent it from ending up in our fish or around our marine animals, and including our terrestrial animals. So that's one and two, and number three is recycle. When we talk about recycling, are there one plastics that you already mentioned, a few are recyclable, others are not? If somebody were to buy something plastic, what's your best advice then? Look at the bottom. So most plastics have numbers on the bottom, one through seven. The ones and twos have the highest value, so try to buy plastics that are ones and twos. Uh, the, the threes is PVC, really should stay away from that because there's a lot of nasty chemicals in PVC. Four is low-density polyethylene. Five is polypropylene. Six is polystyrene, again, another one to stay away from. None of those are really recyclable in a massive scale. There are some communities that can recycle, say, uh, polypropylene, which are your number fives, but really find out what they're recycling in your community. Bonnie, we're almost out of time, but PlasticOceans.org, your organization, if people were inspired, what can they find there and how can they support you further? So Plastic Oceans is the, the film's webpage and ours is Plastic Ocean Project. And we have plenty of opportunities, including cleanups, Uh, We do travel around the world. We give seminars, lectures. We have a traveling art exhibit from all the trash that I've collected from three of the five gyres, and it's 25 feet of canvases where we are getting it out to communities, especially ones that aren't coastal, right? Most people think this is a coastal problem, but in fact, this is a problem that's being generated from everywhere on the planet. So getting people that are not associated with the oceans to understand that we have an impact on the ocean no matter where we live. And that's part of the things that we're reaching out to communities to have them grasp 
this notion that we're all part of the ocean. That's PlasticOceans.org or PlasticOceanProject.org. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for all your work, all your dedication, for that love that you have for the ocean. We are better for it. She's the Executive Director, Director of Science and Research and Academic Partnerships at the Plastics Ocean Project. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, because if it wasn't for opportunities like yours, our message doesn't get out. So thank you so much for taking the time today to share this information. You're welcome. We're all in this together, literally. Thank you. Literally. We'll have you back soon. Take good yes. care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye. From the ocean to the land, our behavior and our practices affecting the sea as well as our land-based environments. Here is the consumer update from the produce dock in San Francisco how to buy it, how to store it, how to eat it, what to choose. Here is what's in season. And with me is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic, Mr. Earl Herrick, actually not on the phone, but live here in the studio. Mm, yeah, warm and toasty. Here <laughs> yeah. I am. You made it through the rain. Oh, my goodness. What is the, what's the focus of, of the produce world for you? Oh, we're, we're sharp and acute today. This is an avocado update. What's up with avocados? <laughs> oh, it's, it's like the topic, right? It really is. Under health professionals, <laughs> really, like any anyone on the show somehow talks about avocados. Like, well, yeah, there's, it's being used in so many ways, and it, it's, so, it's such good oil and such good food, and the popularity of it continues to explode. Yeah, 20 minerals, 25 nutrients. I mean, it's just, it's, super, yeah. it's just totally superfood, right? And even though it has so many fats, it actually helps you lower cholesterol. I Ab mean, it's, it's yeah. a really amazing. But you're talking about trade and what we find in the yeah. store. Yeah, well, the, first of all, uh, the tag on to what you're saying, the um, consumption per capita, it continues to grow. So, the update's important because it, it, it kind of happened almost overnight where we knew the cal the Mexican crop was going to be short, but just it happened almost overnight. And if you remember last fall, the season uh, got kicked off with incredibly high prices because the supply was detained down in Mexico for any number of reasons, strikes. Now that crop is ending and the California crop is starting slow, though it is pretty much fully engaged. But it's going to be an odd year in California because the supply is down because during the drought years, which we've been experiencing the last five, six years, many of the orchards were uh, shortened, meaning they look at 100 acres. We don't have enough water since avocado trees are huge water users. They said, uh, many growers said, I'm going to knock off 20 acres of avocados because I can't water them anyway. So now that that's a lost, lost production. So we're going to see less supply avocados. So we're going to see expensive piece of fruit all the way probably through the summer. Now that season is going to run out in about June, uh, July, August. And hopefully we're going to, before the Mexican crop starts again in the fall, we're going to have this in, influx of the Peruvian avocado. Now that's fairly new for the organic trade. We I've seen it the last two years, but we should see that supply spike, which will help us bridge that 
uh, late summer. Before or, Mexican kicks in again. Correct. And that, and that avocado should be very good that time of year because the oil content will be up. What does it mean to the end consumer? We had Christy on the show, one of your buyers mm -hmm. who deals with avocados. She said, you know, end of the season Mexican. If it still says Mexican on the sticker product of Mexico, mm -hmm. then eat it a little earlier because the oils might or tend to get rancid quicker. So eat yes. it on a more firmer side. Mm -hmm. If it's California, make sure it's really ripe to develop the oils, even if you ripen it on your counter. There you um, go. What does that mean, though, for the consumer? It doesn't store well. It's not an item where you can buy 10 avocados and freeze them, right? Mm. No. Now, that's the Mexican we're talking about there, and there's not a lot of those around, though they still are. Though they're Only a couple more weeks, you're saying. Yeah. Three, four weeks. And those are going to be late in their season, meaning they're mature fruit, meaning that they're higher in oil. So you do have to uh, take care of they'll ripen quicker. So what I do is I put them in, a, <laughs> put them in my in my drawer in the uh, fridge in the refrigerator with a couple uh, towels around them kind of insulate them and then pull them out as i want to eat them in a day or two they'll ripen that quickly but you can only store them for that long right so what yeah. do you do as a, if the prices are high and you do want to eat them is there any trick can you buy get, can you get a deal and then freeze them they don't really you, they don't store you no know, you know i've heard of some people uh, making guacamole and freezing them or something I've, I've never tried that i don't know for me it's it's something uh, i wait till it ripens and i eat it fresh so, so just expect higher prices expect higher prices uh maybe be a little more judicial in terms of the frequency of eating them if if it's an economic situation or make sure it's a really good one when you when you buy it yeah so right now mexican if there's any left be careful because they they'll turn very quickly california uh they're they're on the market they'll only get better uh they're certainly fine here uh here we are in in almost march, march. right so Bingo. Yeah, they're they're fine. They'll get they'll peak probably May, June, July. Would you ask a produce manager to cut open a, an an avocado if it's ripe in the store? Most of the time, it's not ripe anyway, right? You know, I wouldn't do that. I mean, avocados are not that really that difficult to ascertain whether they're ripe. I've never had one ask, and I would just say rather than sample one, let me pick you out one that I know you'll like. And if you go home and it's, it wasn't right, it was already over, bring it back, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You get a new one. I absolutely. Mean, that's $3, you say, right? Especially if you know the guy, George. Come on. Sure. Yeah. What's the price of an avocado that we need to expect? I would say, you know, you're two, you're, two bucks. Yeah. I would say $2. You, know, you might be able to do some uh, promotions, three for five. But again, avocados come sized. Uh -huh. And uh, smaller the, is cheaper. Yeah, definitely. And but and I think they're all a value of some sort. The real big ones are going to cost more, but you can probably get two meals out of it. Cool. Yeah. So awesome. this is the update, and uh, you know, avocados just continues wow, to be a hot topic. Amazing. Well, amazing food. Yeah, but it's how <laughs> things become so popular. You're from kale to now avocado. It's in everyone's <laughs> everywhere you look. It's about avocados and how good they are for you, which is true, but. It was already true 20 years ago. Well, what was the market? Well, yeah. Well, just, I remember growing up in Ohio. I never even knew it in avocado until I came out <laughs> to California. That was back in the yeah, 70s. It all starts here. Yes, Great. it does. Thanks for coming in. Wonderful. Uh, great That's to be here. Earl Herrick. The website is earlsorganic.com for recipe and tips. Check it out, earlsorganic.com. Thanks so much. Thank you, Helga. And that was an hour on our environments. What's in season, organic produce, fruits and vegetables grown organically as part of the natural environment, land-based, and also the ocean today, a focus here on an organic conversation, a plastic ocean, a new documentary with a critical view on our planet's pollution. 
Thanks so much for listening. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another episode next week. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. The show is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters, Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or the culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. For more episodes and our podcasts, go to anorganicconversation.com. And of course, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. Our Twitter handle is talkorganic. And we're also on Instagram. I am Helge Helberg, host and executive producer of An Organic Conversation, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>